morning. Good morning, Journey. Go ahead and be seated. Grab your Bibles. We're in Matthew chapter 5 today as we begin a brand new series in a brand new month in a brand new year. If you don't have a Bible today, our ushers are going to go down the aisle. Um, they'll have Bibles that you can use. They'll have Bibles that you can have. We've given away more than 600 Bibles since our church began about two and a half years ago this way. So if you want one to just follow along today or to have, just put your name in the front. If you don't have one or you don't know where yours is, take it home and start reading this one uh, or turn on your phone or your tablet, however you're going to follow along. Matthew chapter 5 is where we find ourselves and we begin a brand new month of a brand new year with a brand new series titled The New You Resolution. This is a time of year where for some reason every year the clock resets and we're able to look backwards and, and look at an entire year and we're able to look forward at an entire year. And this is kind of the time of year this month where we decide what's going to be different this year than last year so that our life can be better. And as we get into the early stages of our church this January, I want to help you make some spiritual resolutions that I believe will help you have a better spiritual year in 2014 than you did in 2015. 13, and we're going to begin today and continue for the next nine weeks in what is known biblically as the Sermon on the Mount. For those of you who are new to church or maybe new to the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' longest recorded sermon. And it's really the very first words that Matthew gives Jesus in his biography of Jesus. Four men wrote a story about the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they were written to help us understand who Jesus is and who Jesus wanted us to be. So they're written purposefully to take us on a journey. And if you've been a part of our church for a little while, November 24, we started our Christmas series um, that we just titled The Real Christmas, the, the Bible Story of Jesus' Birth. And in November and December, we studied Matthew chapter 1, we studied Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 5 is where Matthew really presents Jesus as a teacher who has something to say. And in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 1, we'll go through verse 16 today. The Sermon on the Mount spans Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7, 111 verses. And in the next nine weeks, we'll look at every one of the 111 verses. But today, we just look at the first 16. And here is how Matthew presents Jesus' ministry to us. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. Now, if you have a pen, I want you to underline those words, he began to teach them. Because this was not just the beginning of a sermon, this was the beginning of a ministry. These are the first words that Matthew really presents Jesus speaking to us, the first of what will be three years of ministry. So as Matthew introduces us to Jesus, he said, here's where it starts with Jesus. He began three years of teaching before he went to the cross with this section of scripture. Here's what Jesus wanted people to know first. So if you're new to church, new to Jesus, maybe been checking out the religious thing but aren't real sure where you fall, this is where you're supposed to start. This is the starting line of where Jesus wants you to begin in knowing who he is. He says, it says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Verse 3, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. 
Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You're the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, I love this portion of scripture that we just read in Matthew chapter 5 because it brings back fond and funny and embarrassing memories for me uh, all at once. Matthew chapter 5 verses 1 through 16 was the very first text that I ever preached in my very first sermon that I ever gave. Uh, when I went to college, it was my goal when I went to college to be a school teacher. I wanted to be a, a history government teacher. I wanted to be a football coach like my dad. I hope to one day get my administrator's degree and maybe be an athletic director, a school principal and coach. That was my design for my life. But as I began to go through college, I felt more and more led that I was supposed to be a youth pastor, that I was supposed to work with students in the public school system, but that my teaching was supposed to be more spiritual than historical or uh, in government realm. So I changed my major my junior year and decided that I was going to go into ministry. And in my first round of Bible classes, one of my classes was a class where everyone in the class was given a portion of the New Testament that they had to come preach a sermon on. And I was in all these classes with all these people who were born and raised to be preachers. I didn't know anything about the Bible. I knew very little about Jesus. I didn't know anything about theology. I might not have even been able to spell that word. And I was given as my text the Sermon on the Mount. My assignment for that semester was to take the Sermon on the Mount and to bring a 20-minute message on the Sermon on the Mount and to talk to the people in my class about the Sermon on the Mount. And then I got to stand there while all of my classmates critiqued my message from how I looked to how I sounded to how quickly I spoke to the content that I was giving. And I chose from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 1 through 16, because growing up, going to a public school, even though I went to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night youth group, I only had two verses memorized when I went to college. One was John 3, 16. Um, raised in the household that I was raised in, I think you, you just kind of get to know that one. Somehow everyone knows that one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But the other verse I had learned at Fellowship of Christian Athletes, Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they see your good deeds and glorify your God who's in heaven. And when we went to FCA, we were always challenged to live in such a way to play the game in such a way that we exuded character and integrity so that people would know that we, were, that we were playing the game for a higher power and that there was something more to what we were doing. So I knew two verses, and one of the verses that I knew happened to be in a text of Scripture that I had to preach a sermon on, so I thought, I'll preach a sermon on Matthew 5, 16, how to let your light shine. And I read through, I remember that day getting up in class and we had to wear a tie and I think I might have had to wear a coat because I went to Baptist college and that's how Baptist did it back in the day. And I got up in the podium and read Matthew 5, 1 through 16 and I said, I want to focus on verse 16 and I want to teach you how you can be a light to the world around you. And I gave what I thought was a pretty good little message. I mean, nobody, nobody became a Christian. They all were, um, you know, and they all knew more than me. And they said nice things about my message. And I'll never forget my professor, Dr. Stevens, got up. And he said, Christian, that was, a, and I'll never forget what he said. He said, that was a good presentation. Um, it was not a good sermon. Because he said, you missed the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount. I gave you, as a text, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. 
And your message proves that you don't understand the Sermon on the Mount enough to teach people the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, Christian, grab your Bible. Let me show you what the Sermon on the Mount is about. If you have your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 4 because Matthew has only given Jesus two lines of ministry up to this point in his book. In Matthew 1, we learn about Joseph and Mary. In Matthew 2, we learn about the wise men. In Matthew 3, we learn a little bit about John the Baptist and Jesus' temptation. But Jesus up to this point has only had two lines. If this were a play, Jesus has only had two lines of ministry. Matthew 4, 17 where Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of God is near. If you have your pen, you should circle the word repent in verse 17 and just write somewhere in the margin of your Bible, change. That's what Jesus is saying. In Matthew 4.17, Jesus says, you need to change the way that you live. In Matthew 4.19, Jesus has his second line of ministry. He says, follow me. So up to this point, Jesus has only had two lines of ministry. He's only had two lines of preaching. And his two lines of preaching are this. You need to change and become more like me. That's all Jesus has said up to Matthew chapter 5. You need to change so you can become more like me. The question would have been how. You need to change to become more like me. How do we do that? And Jesus says, I'm glad you ask. And he sets out to teach us 111 verses that are all about how we are to change to become like Jesus. And as I look at the month of January, and as we look at a year where we hope to be better spiritually this year than we were last year, Jesus is going to teach us how we can change to become more like him. Now, as we highlight and kind of just overview the Sermon on the Mount, here's what we're going to learn the next nine weeks at our church. Because the Sermon on the Mount is more than about just being a light. The Sermon on the Mount teaches us, number one, that your spiritual DNA is going to determine your spiritual blessings. Jesus is going to teach us that it's our spiritual DNA. It's the inside of our life that's going to determine the blessings that come in the outside of our life. As a matter of fact, in the 11 verses between verse 3 and verse 13, we see nine characteristics of spiritual DNA that are all described as being blessed. Now, the word blessed in this translation is is a synonym for the word happy in our uh, generation. So Jesus is basically saying, if you want to be blessed, he doesn't say you need to do this. He says, if you want to be blessed, you need to become this. So Jesus helps us understand that it's our spiritual DNA. It's who we're becoming that determines the blessings that we're going to be receiving. Number two, Jesus tells us, this may be the most astounding part of this that I missed 15 years ago in Bible college. Jesus is going to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount that if we can change the way we think, that we can change the way we live. This, as a matter of fact, is, is the theme in the main point of Matthew chapter 5. The phrase, you've heard that it was said, but I tell you, occurs six times in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus was saying, you've heard that you're supposed to think this way, but if you think this way, you're actually going to become this. And you've heard, you've been told that you're supposed to believe this. But if I can change the way you think and you can believe this, it's going to change the way you live. And, and you've heard it said this about this particular thing spiritually. But if you can learn to think this way about this thing spiritually, it's going to change the way you live. And six times Jesus says, you've been brought up to think this. But if I can change the way you think, I can literally change the way that you live. Dr. John MacArthur, who's one of the greatest New Testament scholars alive today, says the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the message and work of the king are first and most importantly internal and not external. 
They're spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. Here we find no politics or social reform. His concern is for what men are because what they are determines what they do. You see, these Jews 2,000 years ago thought Jesus was going to come as a political king who was going to overthrow the crooked, backward, anti-Christian Roman government. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not here to change anything politically. I'm here to change things personally. How odd it is that 2,000 years later, we have a Christian church who's known a whole lot for what we stand for politically, but there's not a lot of personal change going on in people's lives. And all the outside world around us knows is the politics and social reform that we want, but they don't know the Jesus who's impacted us so deeply. You see, Jesus says, I want to start with your heart. Because if I can begin with your heart, not your politics, not your stances, if I can begin with your heart, if I can begin with your mind, if I can change the way you think, I can change the way that you live. If I can get you pursuing blessing in your life, I can change the very person that you are. I tell you, one of the things that's broken in the way that we think today in the church world, it's probably my main prayer and concern for Journey Church International in the year 2014 is the thought that I can really be strong spiritually and not be plugged into the church. The thought that I can really be strong spiritually, my kids are going to grow up and love God, but I don't have to be a part of the church. I, just, I want you to know, I don't believe that. You know, I drive a truck now that my dad gave me a few months ago, and the, the truck, though the engine drives well, it's got major, major, major rust damage on it. And the body of the truck will be gone long before the engine of the truck goes. And I, I was talking to one of my car friends about that. And they said, you're, you're going to lose the body way before you lose the engine. And I called my dad and I said, why, dad, why is this rusted so bad? And he said, Christian, there was a year of four, there were four or five years that I never put it in the garage. And when it never went in the garage, it was just exposed to the elements and it just began to corrode and there's just nothing you can do to undo the corrosion. Now, there are some Christians who are never in the church and their life's beginning to rust. And there's some corrosion in their marriage, and there's some corrosion in their morals, and there's some corrosion in their parenting, and there's some corrosion in the spiritual peace that they have. And I'm telling you, your body's gonna rust long before your soul is. You've invited Jesus to forgive your sins and be your savior, but, but you're so far from him right now. And if we think we can be strong spiritually, and if we think our kids will grow up and love God with kind of a halfway commitment to church, I'm just telling you, that, that ain't gonna happen. One of the goals that I have for our church is that this year everyone would be more committed this year to church than they've ever been before because I believe if we can change the things we're committed to that will literally change the spiritual DNA in our life. I don't know about you, but last week, you know, we canceled church because we were out driving at 4.30 a.m. trying to figure out if the roads were ready for our volunteers to get here to unpack the trailers. It was minus 14 degree wind chill and it was just like, you know, this just isn't going to happen. We're, we're not going to be able to have church. And I'm telling you, when I walked in today, it felt like I hadn't seen some people in six months. You know, just like one week off felt like an eternity of not coming to church. And there were some people, because they were gone from the holidays, I didn't see, December 29th, they were out of town. December 22, they were doing church with family. There are some people in our church that I haven't seen for a month, and I saw them kind of come, and it was like, man, I feel like I haven't seen you forever. And there are some people in our church that literally only come once every six or eight weeks, and I think, how, do, how could they ever feel connected with anyone in our church when you only see them in passing once every six weeks or eight months? Jesus says if we can change the way we think, we can change the way that we live. And one of the things we need to realize is that we won't stay strong if we quit going to the gym. We're not going to stay strong spiritually if we quit coming to church. 
I challenge you, get really committed to Sunday morning church this year. And then number three, Jesus is going to teach us that until you learn the spiritual heart behind your religious habits, there's going to be a disconnect between you and God. And I'm a kid who was raised in church, but I'll be honest, there was a disconnect between me and God. I did not understand the God who really loved me and cared for me until I began to understand the heart behind the habits. When they were just habits, I'm telling you, I don't know about you, but I usually get the habits wrong. I don't know about you, but there's, there are very few weeks where I bat a thousand spiritually. And when it was just about habits, I always felt like I was letting God down and there was this chasm that existed between me and being close to God. But when I began to understand the heart behind the habits, I understood that my best was all that God was looking for and the failures I had, he had paid the price for so, so that that gap could be closed. You know, Malachi 4, 6 is the very last verse of the Old Testament. And for those of you who are new to church, the Bible's really written in two sections. We call one the Old Testament. The word testament means covenant. So it's old promise and new promise. And in the Old Testament, the Bible is is written to the Jewish people to teach them who the Savior of the world will be. The New Testament or the New Covenant is written about the promise of the Savior. His name is Jesus. It's all about his life and his church. But the Old Testament ends very, very badly. The people are far from God and things aren't going well. And they're still operating in religion, but there's no relationship between the people and God. And the very last words of the Old Testament introduce what the New Testament will look like. And in Malachi 4, 6, Malachi says, someone will come, the Savior, and he'll turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and he'll turn the hearts of the children to their parents. Somebody who's, somebody's going to come who's going to change people's hearts. And all of a sudden, we open Matthew chapter 1, and here is the promised Savior who has come According to Jesus, his message changed the way you live and become more like me. How do we do that? Jesus says, let me start with your heart, not your habits. Let me start with your heart. So here's my Sermon on the Mount challenge for you, because every Sunday for the next eight weeks, we're going to open our Bible and study Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But here's my challenge for you so that this message that Jesus gave is pressed deep into your heart and that you get a whole lot more from the Sermon on the Mount of what Jesus said than what Christian says on Sunday morning. One, here's my first challenge for you. I want to challenge you to read Matthew chapter 5 through 7 every Sunday for the next 10 weeks. Either Sunday morning before you come to church or Sunday morning when you go home or Sunday morning when you're standing out there drinking your coffee and eating your donuts or Sunday night before you go to bed. My challenge for everyone here today is that every Sunday for the next 10 weeks, you open up your Bible and you read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's 111 verses. It'll take you less than 10 minutes at the pace that people speak in normal conversation. I believe if you do that, the message of you need to change and become more like me will be driven deep into your heart. Secondly, for those of you who want to go the next step, I want to challenge you to write out the Sermon on the Mount once a month in January, February, and March. Because that's how long we'll be talking about the Sermon on the Mount. And it's amazing the different things you'll see when you write it down versus when you just read it. I've, I've been told in in learning workshops and my percentages aren't going to be correct, but you remember like 10% of what you hear. You remember a little more what you write. You remember a little more what you discuss. You remember like 80% plus of what you can teach back to someone. So if you will not only read this, but if you'll begin to write it, I believe you'll learn it more deeply. And you're going to write something and think, I, I don't ever remember reading that. And God's going to begin driving truth deep into your heart. If you want to do one better, I want to challenge you to memorize the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 12. There's a list of nine things 
that if you become these nine things, your life is promised to be blessed in certain areas. Now, some of you are going to say, I can't memorize scripture. Listen, I know you have memorized your nine fantasy players' stats from this year. And I know you have memorized your nine favorite restaurants and your nine favorite meals. And I, I know that everyone in here can remember nine things that are important to them. And I don't know how if Jesus said these nine things are guaranteed to bless you, that we wouldn't say those are probably nine things that I need to remember. Put them on the notes of your phone and look at them once a day. If you want to do one better than that, for those of you who have kids, I challenge you to memorize the Beatitudes together as a family. Nine weeks, you could do one a week for the next nine weeks. When we close the series March 9, your children can be saved. Jesus says that if I do this, I'm going to be blessed. Jesus says that if I feel this way about certain things, Jesus says if my life looks like this, I'm going to be blessed. I challenge you to do that. And then for those of you who want to take a big leap, I want to challenge people in here to memorize the entire Sermon on the Mount. Now, some of you think that, that I've lost my mind by asking you to do that. It's like, Christian, that's 111 verses. There's no way anyone could memorize 111 verses. But I want to tell you there is a way. And for those of you in here who are really disciplined and diligent about your Bible reading, for those of you in here who would say that in 2013 you spent more time in the Bible than you've ever spent in any year before in your life, I want to tell you your next step spiritually is to begin to memorize large portions of Scripture. When I was in college and I finally got someone who started mentoring me, um, I got to the point after a year of mentorship where I was reading my Bible every day and I was praying and I was beginning to memorize certain verses about certain things and he challenged me. His name was Barry. He said, Christian, your next step is, is to memorize a large portion of Scripture. And he said, I challenge you to memorize the book of James. And it took me two or three months, but I finally memorized the book of James. And after I memorized the book of James, I memorized Philippians and I memorized First and Second Timothy. And, and what I found out was the more scripture that I pressed deep into myself, the more I was able to understand how to live for God. So now anytime I'm in ministry with somebody who's really disciplined, I'm always trying to figure out how to push someone to the next level spiritually. So when we started this church, I, I met a man in our church who's become one of my very best friends. His name is Robbie McCourt. And Robbie was, he did set up and tear down with us and he helped with our youth ministry and uh, I started working out with him every now and then. We started spending time together. And I realized as we talked that this was someone who read his Bible every day, very faithful, extremely disciplined. And as we were talking one day, I said, you know, I think your next step, because you can't just read your Bible over and over and over and over. You have, to, you have to keep pushing yourself to do more. I said, I think your next step is to memorize something, something big. So I said, I want to challenge you to memorize the book of James. And he did. It took him a few months, but he memorized the book of James. That was in the fall. So we got to the point where the year was turning, and I said, what are you going to memorize next year? And I don't know if it was my idea or his idea, but he said, uh, we, we came up with together that he was going to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is actually a little longer than the book of James. So he set forth to memorize the Sermon on the Mount with some people. We ended up as a church taking our first mission trip to Israel that year, and one of the places we were going to visit was the Mount of Beatitudes where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. So I said, Robbie, I don't know how well you know the Sermon on the Mount, but I'd like for you to quote it on the Mount of Beatitudes so we could get a picture of maybe what this looked like. And he said, okay, and he did it. And then we took another mission trip back this past year, and I asked him to do it again. And when I knew that I was going to preach through this section of Scripture, I called him and I said, Robbie, I'd like you to quote the Sermon on the Mount to our church. Because I'm going to challenge our church to go to the next level in their spiritual commitment. And when I say this, a lot of people are going to think this, this can't possibly be done. But if you will show the diligence that you've had in doing it, 
I think some people will take the challenge. So Robbie, I, I want to invite you to come up here. Uh, Robbie has memorized it in the New Living Translation. That's what he had been doing his devotions out of. It's a little different than the New International Version that we have. Uh, it'll be on the screen behind him as he quotes, but here's what I want you to do. Dr. John MacArthur says that this section of Scripture, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, was one message that Jesus gave at one time. So if you can just in your head picture yourself sitting out in the country on a hillside and Jesus getting up and beginning to teach, I want you to listen to the message in full that Jesus would have given that day from someone who's going to quote it to us this morning. Robbie? One day, as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. You are the light of the world like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. But I say that anyone who even, who's even angry with someone is subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you're in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So, if you're presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple, and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person, then come and offer your sacrifice to God. When you're on your way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge, who will hand you over to an officer, and you'll be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you've paid the last penny. You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say that anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. You've heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife 
by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife, unless she's been unfaithful, causes her to commit adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. You've also heard that our ancestors were told you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven's God's throne. Do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem's the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. Just say a simple yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives the sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that, but you ought to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Watch out. Don't do your good deed publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and street corners to call attention to your acts of charity. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you and pray to your father in private. Your father who sees everything will reward you. When you pray, don't babble on and on as people of other religions do, for they think their prayers are answered merely by repeating their words again and again. Don't be like them, for your Father knows exactly what you need even before you ask Him. Pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. May your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today the food we need and forgive us our sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. And don't let us yield to temptation but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. And when you fast, don't make it obvious as the hypocrites do, for they try to look miserable and disheveled so that people will admire them for their fasting. I tell you the truth, that is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you fast, comb your hair, wash your face, then no one will notice that you're fasting, except your father who knows what you do in private, and your father who sees everything will reward you. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is, no one can serve two masters. For you'll hate one and love the other. 
You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he'll give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Do not judge others, and you will not be judged, for you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you can't see past the log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, get rid of the log in your own eye. Then you'll see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. They'll trample the pearls, then turn and attack you. Keep on asking, you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? Do to others whatever you'd like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, just as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many miracles in your name, but I'll reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. When the rains Come in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house. It won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it'll collapse with a mighty crash. 
When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike their teachers of religious law. So, I don't, I don't think, I don't think I could read it that smoothly. I had a few people in the first service ask me where you were reading it from. Yeah. So it's not displayed anywhere. It's not on the t- all that TV. TV has his numbers telling us how long we have left in the service. Um, Robbie, let me ask you a couple questions about it, because I know people are thinking, how long did that take you to memorize? And I know you've given it now several times, and that's the best I've ever heard it. Uh, But how long did it take you to just begin to memorize it and get it done? Eight weeks, um, every day, not missing a day. Eight weeks. And I'm guessing you started a verse at a time? I mean, did you put it in your phone? Did you have your phone read it to you? Did you write it down? How... What did you do to memorize it? I fill up a note card, and I complete a note card every day until I finish a chapter. Then I'll review that chapter for an entire week. So how many verses per note card? Just whatever feels right. A couple? <laughs> I don't want it too big, don't want it too small. I want to make sure I complete it in a day. Right. So. Um, up uh, three years ago, how much scripture did you have memorized? John 3.16. Had to... <laughs> that was that, was that about it? it? Maybe. Wow. Um, the thing I want you to know about Robbie is Robbie's not, he's not a pastor. Um, he's not a Sunday school teacher. Uh, he's not a public speaker. Um, he's, just, he's just a guy who goes to our church, a very, very busy guy. He owns his own painting company. Um, and when, when we became friends, I realized that he had a lot of discipline for Jesus. And if Robbie can memorize this, I promise you any of you can. As a matter of fact, the reason that he doesn't like to quote this publicly is be- because he, he did this to get closer to Jesus. He's not a public speaker. When I asked him today, do you want to hold a mic or wear a mic? He said, I've never, I've never really held a mic, so I should probably wear one. Uh, and then I said, well, do you want to get there early to, to do a mic check? And he said, I've, I've never spoken on a stage, so I better. I, I say that to say he's, this is not what he does for a living. He didn't memorize this to go around to youth groups and share it. He memorized this to know Jesus better. And every time I ask him to quote it, he said, I'm always afraid um, that people will think much of me but not be challenged to do it personally. This is not about him, but Robbie, I thank you for your commitment and discipline and showing us that it can be done. So, good job. That's the best I've ever heard. Good job, good job, good job. Um, Question. Question for those of us who are going to take challenge one or two or three or four or five. What is going to really learning the Sermon on the Mount do for you spiritually? What does the Bible say happens when Scripture gets imprinted on your spiritual DNA? Let me show you. In Joshua 1.8, and on your sermon notes, you might circle the word Joshua, because here's what you need to know about Joshua. Joshua was the first Christian leader in the history of the world that had a Bible. Noah did not have a Bible. Abraham did not have a Bible. Enoch and Adam and Eve did not have a Bible. Moses wrote the Bible. Joshua was the first Christian leader in the history of the world that actually had a paper book with words from God in it. And some of the first advice God ever gave to Joshua, the first leader who ever had an opportunity to read the Bible, he said, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Pour scripture into your life and you're going to be successful spiritually. In Psalm 119.11, the psalmist said, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Pour scripture into the spiritual DNA of your life and you're going to live more like Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
pour scripture into the spiritual DNA of your life and what the outcome is is someone who looks more like Jesus. The next two weeks, we're going to take this new you resolution journey together. And here's the three things that I'm hoping happen to the people in our church over the course of the next 21 days. One, I pray that our need to understand and know Jesus gets really deep in our hearts. And we won't be content anymore with coming to church when we have time. And we won't even be content coming to church every Sunday. But we will have to every day go seek out a little bit more who Jesus wants to be in our life so we can have this personal relationship with Jesus that starts in our heart, not our habits. Number two, we're going to learn God's prescription for true happiness and spiritual success. Nine times God says, if you want to be blessed, you want to be happy, you need to become this type of person. He doesn't say do these things. He says, become these things. If you become these things, the blessing is just going to flow into your life. And then thirdly, because I like the word light, and I preach my first ever sermon on Matthew 5, 16, I pray that we will develop a life that is a light to the world. I pray that we develop into something that people look at and they think, I want to be able to do that one day. I want to be able to become that one day. I want to help people like they're helping people. I want to have peace in the midst of trials like they have peace. I want to be as friendly as they are. My goal for us as we pour scripture in through this new year resolution is that you become a person that people see and notice because of what Jesus has done in you. That your heart changes, that your mind changes, that as a result of that your life changes and that your impact changes. That's my goal for our church this year, one person at a time.